0: What's wrong with modern healthcare? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Lauren Hall. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Lauren Hall. Lauren is an associate professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She has written extensively on the classical liberal tradition, including articles on Edmund Burke, Adam Smith, and Montesquieu. Her current research is on the politics of women and the family in classical liberalism. And she also writes on related areas in evolutionary theory and bioethics. Her most recent book is The Medicalization of Birth and Death and will inform a lot of our conversation today. Lauren, welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Lauren, per our usual routine on the Curious Task, we start off with a question and just go wherever the answers and discussion leads us. So, let's kick it right off. I'll throw it over to you. What's wrong with modern healthcare?
1: There's a really easy short answer, um, but that short answer hides a much, much longer, much more complicated answer. The short answer is that we provide too much of the wrong type of healthcare and too little of the right kind. So, my research focuses primarily, or at least right now, on birth and death. And those are kind of interesting case studies because they're not entirely medical, uh, they're not illnesses in and of themselves. So birth, uh, pregnancy, and labor and delivery are not in in themselves illnesses. There can be medical complications involved, but you don't actually require sort of medical treatment of uh, labor and delivery, for example. And the same thing is true of death, particularly death at the end of life, um, or rather death in the elderly, um, or terminally ill, for example, many times uh, people are able to you pass away without intensive medical care. Um what we find in the US, and I think the trends are actually similar in Canada. And in fact, from some of the recent research I've seen is that the Canadian system is moving in the US direction, as is Europe. So this seems to be a trend sort of across the board and not something that's specifically um, a problem in the US, although it's certainly gone farther in the US than it has in other countries. Um, and I would say the primary issue that we struggle with in the US context is an overreliance on um, hospitals and higher intensity care in general. So uh, the vast majority of women in the United States give birth in hospitals. It's over 98.6%. So it's the status quo for birth in the United States. And the vast majority of people at the end of life spend time in hospitals shortly before dying or die in hospitals. And so what ends up happening is that we have a healthcare system that really prioritizes high intensity procedures over things like social support, primary care, and comfort care. And the research consistently, the medical research consistently shows that people get too many procedures, too many medications, and too many interventions. And all of that stuff comes with very real costs. So it harms patients, it overloads the healthcare system, and it takes money and resources away from the lower intensity care that can actually support people in the way that they really need to be supported. So that's the short answer is that we we prioritize the wrong kind of care. And to be fair, that That high-intensity care is fantastic if you are in a car accident or if your child, uh, God forbid, has pediatric cancer or something like that. You absolutely want those really um, high-intensity—you want great hospitals, you want uh, a really awesome cancer research center. But what ends up happening is that those medical interventions that we've invented for people um, sort of in those acute kinds of conditions— have been spread to people across the population in, in a way that actually ends up being very, very harmful. Um, so we'll probably talk about a little bit of that in in birth, but uh, birth is probably the most obvious way in which that spread has happened. So a lot of the tools... Um, like um, inductions, uh, fetal monitoring, a range of interventions that were used for women in high risk pregnancies are now standard for all pregnancies. And what research is consistently showing is that that leads to some really unfortunate side effects, including overtreatment and escalating C-section rate, as well as a bunch of other serious problems. So so that's the short answer. Um, The long answer is that that those trends are not accidental, and they were in fact avoidable. So one of the things that I found in my research when I was first looking at this, I mean, the standard explanation that I kept sort of reading was, "Well, these are just cultural trends. Americans like high intensity medicine. Um, patients keep wanting higher intensity care, and so that's what's driving this bus. And that didn't seem terribly persuasive to me, but I figured, okay, maybe you know maybe that's what's going on. Um but the more that I dug into it, what I found is that all of the incentives pointing toward high intensity care come from the range of policies at the federal and state level that really push us in that direction. So we have a huge uh, sort of network or web of regulations, insurance policies, malpractice environments that push people toward that high intensity care and that really incentivize doctors to provide that care over less intensive care. So We've kind of created a bureaucratic system that makes it impossible to provide high quality medical care, um, especially for the people who don't need that high intensity care.
0: And on that note, it's interesting in the intro of, of your of your book, you note that ultimately there's sort of these two narratives that people may or may not have about uh, modern health care, the health care they're receiving. On the one hand, you have the ideal model, which is what people at least think they're getting or mm-hmm. hope they're getting which is, you know, this idea you're talking with medical professionals, you're consulting with them, you're getting information along the way, you're making informed decisions, you sort of establish that as that, that's the ideal, right? But but then you say that there's actually the real model, right? And that's something you're about to get into right there, I noticed, is is that the real model is uh, one of choice constraint, regulations, lots of hurdles to jump over. In fact, low communication uh, between you and the medical professionals you may be dealing with, and, and which ultimately impacts uh, your, your informed consent and things like that. So, so maybe Maybe you could go a bit more into that sort of split between the ideal model and, and what the real model is, and also some more of the reasons as as why as as to why we we have that real model. And and I think as well, you kind of sum this up, and I thought this was really great in the intro as well. You talked about use like a river or like a watershed as an analogy. I thought that was great.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I um, it, it took me a while to sort of visualize this because it's so complicated. But the way that I the way that I sort of try to think about this is. Um, you can think about healthcare as sort of being on a river, right? And you have a variety of different options. And in the ideal healthcare watershed, your options are limited by the available medical interventions and the river of whatever disease you have. So um, for some people, their options may be very limited. Um, If you end up with very aggressive cancer, stage four cancer, you may have very few options. Um, if you have a different kind of illness, you may have many more options. So obviously, the, the disease state itself limits options in ways that are just not within our control. Um, but ideally, when people think about how they make medical decisions, you know, they sort of assume that you go into your doctor, your doctor explains what's wrong, They uh, he or she will lay out a range of potential options and the risks and benefits associated with them, and then you make a decision together. And uh, you sort of move forward, and um, and that's I think how I sort of assumed that it worked too, uh, until I started doing this this research, and this research actually came out of my own experiences trying to find decent maternity care for my first birth. Um, which was about seven years ago. So what I found, and I can use my case as sort of an example of how all these regulations play into each other. So in my case, um, I had done enough research. Uh, I live in upstate New York. I knew that I didn't want a medicalized birth. I wanted an unmedicated birth insofar as that was compatible with my medical needs at the time. If I became high risk, I was perfectly happy with medical intervention. But as a low risk first time mother, um, I wanted to uh, limit medical interventions as much as possible. So I had done the research and I was looking around for a birth center. Uh, birth centers are independent, um, or at least they're usually independent, uh, centers that are separate from hospitals, but they usually have transfer agreements with hospitals. So they, they allow first-time mothers to labor, or I'm sorry, low-risk mothers to labor in a sort of home-like environment. And then if somebody gets uh, um, if something goes wrong, they can be transferred to a hospital relatively quickly. So uh, those are common in Europe. Uh, they're somewhat common in some provinces in Canada, but, um, but in the United States, until very recently, they were pretty uncommon. And so I'm in New York State, and I'm looking around. It's a pretty liberal state, uh, and so I assume that there would be birth centers. Well, it turns out that there's only two. One is in Brooklyn, which doesn't work for me. And the other is about an hour away from me in Buffalo. And I don't want to drive an hour while I'm in labor. So I asked some people. I said, "Well, why don't we have any birth centers in in Rochester?" And they said, "Oh, well, they're just not financially feasible. They're not economically feasible. They don't make money. And I said, oh, okay, that that's fine. Um so and, so then I started sort of looking for physicians and and it went from there. Um, and it turned out that i so I found an OB who came recommended and I throughout my um prenatal care I got about maybe 2 minutes with her wow. of actual prenatal visits there was almost no communication with her um everything was done by the nurses she would sort of pop in at the very end and then leave so I was already starting to get a little bit uncomfortable and then around 16 weeks of pregnancy I asked her we're getting close to the halfway mark uh, when can we talk about birth plans and as a political scientist as a political theorist um, I saw birth plans as a really important way of facilitating informed consent why don't I let her know what my preferences are and she can work with me to try to achieve those insofar right. as they are medically reasonable um, she blew me off she's she said that she that she and the entire practice were quote- unquote superstitious of birth plans <laughs> um, and and at that point I re- realized that this was not going to be a relationship that my interests were going to be
0: a priority. They're superstitious of your interests in a way, you know what I mean? Indirectly.
1: Yeah, it was a very, very telling moment. And um, her her clarification was um, we're superstitious because it seems like they always go the opposite of what people want, that births always go the opposite of what the birth plan indicates. And I said to myself, well, that's actually really problematic too, right? If you consistently cannot protect people's preferences in a low-risk environment, uh, this points to a broader sort of systemic issue because there are lots of places that are perfectly capable of doing that. So I ended up, uh, essentially firing her and finding a new, uh, a new physician who was a former home birth midwife. And so she had gone back to medical school and she, uh, was an absolutely fantastic, uh, physician. I got the birth that I wanted with her. but I was puzzled about why this had been so hard. Um, why is it that there were no birth centers in Rochester to begin with? Why did I have to start my care with an obstetrician as opposed to with a midwife or somebody who had, who had started out as sort of more low-intensity kind of focus? Um, the hospital in environment itself where I gave birth was sort of bizarrely restricted in a variety of ways. I had to fight to avoid really basic kinds of interventions that my doctor agreed with me that we could avoid. So it was just a sort of weird um, bureaucratic, I, I call it the upside down in some of my other writings where I talk about it just, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what you think medical care should be like. So I started digging, and it turns out that in New York State, there are some really obvious reasons why we don't have birth centers, and none of them have to do with the financial feasibility of birth center care as a model. Um, and, and just to give your readers a little, or I'm sorry, your listeners a little bit of background, I mean birth centers have consistently been demonstrated to provide high quality, low-cost care for low-risk mothers. There's been a series of um, very large studies published in major, uh, major medical journals that show that birth center care is very high quality, very low cost, and a very appropriate option for low risk mothers. So none of this is bizarre sort of, uh, you know, fairyland magic kind of stuff. This is accepted medical um, medical options. So I ended up looking into the New York State regulations. And it turns out that, well, there's a very clear reason that New York State doesn't have any birth centers, uh, and that's because the medical lobby has systematically prevented birth centers from opening in the state. Uh, This started with the opening of the Manhattan Birth Center in, I believe it was 1987. Um, The medical lobby fought tooth and nail to prevent that birth center from opening. Um, And even when it did, uh, there were enormous, enormous limitations placed on the birth center, including really restrictive collaboration agreements requiring it to have um, a variety of very, very bureaucratic agreements with area hospitals and physicians. Um, But the more important thing is that New York State is what we call a certificate of need law state, which means that um, New York State requires uh, medical, uh, to buy large-scale medical equipment or to open a new clinic, you have to go through a certificate of need process, which means that you have to show the government that this medical resource is necessary. And uh, that comes from older understandings about price control and things that, that actually most researchers um, have shown are no longer beneficial in any way. And in fact, con laws, as they're called, um, probably almost always serve to simply limit competition. Um, but that's certainly what it did in the New York case. So every birth center ha- that opens has to ask the permission of um, the uh, the health board, and as part of their application packet, they have to get uh, essentially permission from local hospitals. They have to have the support of local hospitals that need to say, "This place offers a kind of care that we uh, we cannot provide." So birth centers have to essentially ask the permission of their direct competitors to open.
0: So so just so, just so I'm clear on that certificate of need things. This isn't about the government or any or any body certifying that you know this place is clean and under a certain set of regulations and it will do what it says it's going to do. No, this is sort of you need permission to say, "Oh, this is needed in this area and here's the reasons why." And and, and you're sure we'll yeah. we'll carve out a spot for you on the quote market for this. That's what this is. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep,
1: it has nothing to do with Safety, it has nothing to do with anything else. Oh, the other really important regulation that seriously limited um, birth centers in, in New York was until last year, all birth centers had to be owned by an obstetrician. Which is insane because obstetricians do not operate birth centers. Birth centers are almost always operated and owned by midwives because that's compatible with the standard of care that midwives offer. Um, obstetricians are high-risk practitioners. They they operate in a high-risk environment. They're meant to deal with um, risky pregnancies. So having a, a trained surgeon <laughs> run a birth center for low-risk women is just a—it's a, it's a regulatory sort of insanity, right? But of course, the reason for that is that the obstetricians don't want the competition. So there's, the logic is very clear once you dig a little bit deeper. But I talked to an obstetrician who owned the birth center, uh, who currently owns the birth center in Buffalo. And, uh, and she said that the entire certificate of need process to open her clinic took five years and cost her over half a million dollars in just regulatory fees.
0: Wow!
1: So the The amount this is before she pays for her um before she pays for her location, before she hires staff, before she buys equipment, she's out almost half a million dollars just getting through the bureaucracy. So when I kept hearing from midwives that birth centers were financially, not feasible, right, that it was just a poor economic model. Um, that turned out to be true, but only because the artificial constraints of regulation were such that it is literally impossible to open a birth center in New York State. Um, you have to be incredibly politically connected, as this uh, this doctor was, um, and you have to be able to work out all sorts of things with insurance companies and, and do all of this sort of backdoor dealing. So yeah, it is financially unfeasible to open birth centers in New York State. But that's not because the model doesn't work. That's because the regulations are such that we've made it absolutely impossible for entrepreneurial midwives to provide this kind of care.
0: It's kind of funny that it, to sum up that last part, we say it's it's not that it's not needed; it's just that you can't get your certificate of need.
1: Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and there was actually a funny case in Kentucky, funny in in the depressing sense. Um, Kentucky has no birth centers um, at all, and there they are also a certificate of need state, and um, they uh, the a midwife was going through this process and there was actually one judge that, that said, this is ridiculous. Um, Hospitals can't use the certificate of need process to keep out competition. Um, And it's very clear that the, that the birth center is offering a completely different kind of maternity care than that, which is offered in hospitals. So there actually is a need and there absolutely is a demand, right? Women are demanding this kind of care, Um, And unfortunately, that judge's decision was overturned on appeal. So there are still no birth centers in Kentucky uh, because the hospitals have a total uh, monopoly on Birthing
0: in that state. I think I think it would be great if, if you continued to illustrate some of the other elements along the healthcare process that that sort of create obstacles. You mentioned a few in the introduction to your book, and then you get into them later in the book as well. Uh, and certificate of need laws is definitely one of them, which I think you you did a great job jumping right into. So uh, you mentioned a few others, which I'll just throw at you now, if you'd like to elaborate on. Because mm-hmm. I think you know before we get into the rest of the discussion, it'd be great to to really once again cement in people's minds why it's so restrictive that even the institutions that want to provide better health care, they can't sometimes. So you talked about state regulations on types of care. Maybe you can go a bit into that mm-hmm. and provide a few examples as well. Yeah.
1: So one of the um, major and 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 historically, a lot of this goes back to the growth of physician um, physician associations and physician lobbying groups in the early 1900s. So, the American Medical Association grew up out of a sort of lobbying effort to cut out people like midwives and other non-medical providers as a way to solidify the uh, the power of physicians. That, as far as I know, is not controversial. Um, that is a pretty accurate uh, um, discussion of or. or characterization of the history of a lot of these laws. But now, of course, we're stuck with them. So one of the things that we see uh, in the state-level regulations is that non-medical providers or less medical providers, people like midwives, people like um, various kinds of uh, nurse practitioners, people who provide care in the home, uh, are actually in some ways more heavily regulated than physicians are. And uh, just to give you a couple examples, of how the regulation works. Um, in some states, you have to be a nurse midwife in order to practice midwifery at all legally. So that means that you uh, have to have a nursing background and then go on for a master's in midwifery. Uh, and the vast majority of nurse wa- nurse midwives practice in hospitals. So they're not out and about in the community. They're not in birth centers. They're not in doing home births. Um, they're, they're already centralized in hospitals. So nurse midwives don't necessarily help with the problem of over-hospitalization. They can, but even in the hospital context, they're usually under the supervision of a physician. So that really limits their autonomy as providers to provide lower intensity care. Um, So some states don't allow any uh, non-nurse midwives to operate at all. Um, in other states, they will allow midwives to do some kinds of births, but they put really st- stringent restrictions on the other kinds of births that mid- midwives can oversee. And then there's this within the midwifery community about how, under- how sort of legitimate a lot of these regulations are. So in some states, for example, I would actually say in most states, uh, uh, midwives cannot oversee Uh, births that are a vaginal birth after cesarean. So a woman who's attempting to have a vaginal birth after she had a previous surgical birth. Um, And that's because there's some risks associated with VBAC, as it's called. Um, But a lot of the evidence suggests that those risks are pretty inflated and that the absolute risk for any one individually laboring woman is not that high. Uh, But in many states, midwives cannot, they're legally prohibited from attending those births at all. And so what that means is that in many states in the United States, uh, women are not allowed essentially to give birth via VBAC. They're not allowed to attempt to have a natural uh, a vaginal birth after cesarean section because there's no legal provider for them to do it uh, other than in a hospital. And a lot of hospitals have VBAC bans, so they actually prevent women from giving birth uh, vaginally, because there's some liability indicators, which we'll talk about in in a little bit. But so the the regulations sort of work in a variety of ways to kind of tangle women. Um, So in New York State, for example, I could have sought out a midwife to do, I didn't have the option of a birth center birth, but I could have sought out a a midwife who does home birth. But because of the way that the regulations operate in New York State, um, my insurance company would not reimburse that midwife. For any of the care that she provides. So I would have had to pay out of pocket for that care. So what happens in a lot of cases is that the regulations on certain providers, so if you have a, and and so the non-nurse midwives are called certified professional midwives. They're also sometimes called licensed midwives. For the the (laughs) purposes of this podcast, I'm just going to call them uh, direct entry midwives, but they have a lot of different names in a lot of different states but the direct entry midwives are those who come in without a nursing background. Um, But they go through an apprenticeship program and they go through a series of um, of fairly intensive trainings depending on the state uh, in order to safely um, provide birthing assistance for women. Um, So in in many states, those kinds of midwives are just illegal, uh, meaning that they are not allowed to practice. Um, In New York state, we actually just had a woman who uh, served the Amish community And she was just arrested on multiple felonies for uh, providing home birth for women in the Penyan area. Um, And these are women who would be facing a multiple hour drive to the nearest hospital. Home birth is actually safer for them than it would be for them to get in the car and then give birth on the side of the road somewhere. Um, But this woman was just arrested and is facing felony charges. So that kind of regulation, um, so sometimes midwives are just illegal. The other thing that states do to tangle midwives within the sort of medical complex, broadly speaking, is that they require any practicing midwife to have a collaboration agreement with a physician or a transfer agreement with a hospital. And this puts midwives at um under the direct control of their competitors. So uh, if you look at what happens in a lot, a lot of rural areas, there might be a couple obstetricians out there. And every midwife that has to practice in that state has to get the permission of one of the, those doctors in order to practice legally. And if you are one of those doctors, um, in some states, it actually increases your malpractice liability. So it would actually, physicians have a, a direct incentive not to cooperate with midwives. Um, but in other cases, it's just an economic incentive. It doesn't make sense to compete with your direct competitor if you are trying to boost the numbers in your maternity ward to prevent it from closing. So um, those collaboration agreements can be really problematic in preventing midwives, not only from entering the marketplace, but from providing the kind of care that they uh, that they need to provide. Um, so that's, that's the, one of the examples in birth. There's similar kinds of regulations in, in um, death that, is, that are sort of end-of-life care that are, that are kind of similar, but it might be easier to just stick with the birth case for now, um, since it's relatively straightforward. But so those are some of the examples of the regulations that, that sort of um, are in operation. And then, as I mentioned before, um, if you're thinking about this as a kind of watershed, that uh, that regulatory tributary, that regulatory stream, feeds into the reimbursement stream, because most insurance companies won't reimburse a provider who's not legally allowed to provide care in the state. Right? So, uh, and and it also works its way up into Medicare and Medicaid. Um, Uh, Reimbursement policies uh, at the federal level. So there's a really problematic feedback loop, which is that state laws that limit the type of provider that you can see will then sort of um, flow into these broader reimbursement um, uh, tributaries that really affect how you pay for your care. So even if you do find a provider who's legal in your state, she may not be reimbursable by your insurance company, which means you have to pay out of pocket for that care, which is a huge barrier for most women.
0: I have a few more on the list I'd like you to tackle in terms of the obstacles to to improved healthcare process, but we are at the point where we're going to take a quick break. So we'll do that right now. Uh, Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task, and I'm chatting here with Lauren Hall. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny LeRoy, and Darcy Giroux. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. Here, I'm chatting with Lauren Hall. Lauren, before the break, we were uh, talking and uh, running down a list of obstacles in the in the healthcare system and and process that basically make make it difficult for the quality of healthcare to improve and new players to enter the market and 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 things like that. We 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 just talked about certificate of need laws and and state regulations. Uh, In in your intro, you also listed uh, what's called corporate practice of medicine laws. If if you could elaborate a bit on that, I think that that'd be another great one to to stop and chat about.
1: Yeah. So this one's a little bit. harder to explain because it's really, um, it can be really hidden. So different states have bans on what's called the corporate practice of medicine, but some of them are explicitly legislative bans. Some of them are just hidden in the administrative code. It's really sort of unclear. Um, but the corporate practice of medicine ban goes back to again these early sort of stages of medical um, medical practice where people wanted to prevent physicians from working for a corporation because they were afraid that that would um, that would cloud the physician's independent judgment. So, concerns were that sort of profits or whatever, and we actually have examples of this happening sort of in those earlier ages. So, part of what, what physicians really pushed for was independence. Physicians would be independent practitioners. They could be contracted with by various kinds of corporations, but uh, they need to be sort of independent um, uh, and you, you can't, so, so no corporation can hire a sort of in-house physician. Now, what has actually happened is that we provided numerous carve outs for various corporations depending on how powerful they are. Right. So um most hospitals have carve outs, they can hire doctors directly. Um so in some states you have it has to be a nonprofit hospital. So um, For-profit for hospitals cannot hire doctors directly, so they have to be contractors in that case. Um, in teaching hospitals that are associated with universities, they usually get a carve-out, um, so they can hire physicians directly. Um, and so, what's what's really interesting is that if you look at how this comes into play for competing with um, uh, birth centers, even hospice agencies. Uh, in many states hospice agencies are corporations they're not usually nonprofit actually now they're shifting to for profit but they're corporations and in many states they cannot directly hire physicians well that means that they have to again find physicians who are willing to work with them on a contract basis it's a much much different kind of working environment a lot of physicians will prefer working for a hospital where they can get the you know the full-time salary and benefits sort of within the full um the entire hospital complex uh and and there's There's actually been a shift, too, for primary care physicians to work under the auspices of a larger hospital system. So my primary care doctor, for example, in Rochester, works under the University of Rochester Medical Center. So she is, as far as I know, an employee of that hospital system. She's not an independent contractor. But that's because we've created this carve-out that privileges hospitals over other kinds of organizations. And this came up when I was interviewing some um, hospice administrators who are talking about how it would be much, much easier for them to provide care for people at the end of life if they could actually have doctors on staff, if they could have doctors who could work directly with them, who could be employed by the hospice directly, as opposed to doing what they currently have to do, which is they actually have to do a kind of triangulation with the insurance company, or at least this was the case last year, um, where the insurance company, and this is another interesting carve out, insurance companies are allowed to hire doctors directly because they have a carve out in New York State, Okay, but the hospice organization can't. So we've created all these weird, um, and, and so I actually point to this in the book as this actually breeds corporatization, right? For people who are concerned about corporate monoliths sort of taking over healthcare, this policy really supports that because what you have is a situation where small entrepreneurial businesses cannot hire physicians directly or the physicians have to own the business themselves um, or these large corporate monoliths, these hospitals and insurance companies, they can. So we've just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's this really odd sort of scenario um, where we have this policy that we think protects people, um, but it's not clear what it really does anymore. And what is what is clear that it actually does is it provides a lot of leverage for these um, these large corporate providers to monopolize uh, the physician labor market.
0: Right. I mean, if, if you have a legislation and then a bunch of car votes for people that can influence that legislation, what you end up having in effect is ultimately just regulation for everyone else and not a few key players. Yep, exactly. And what about um, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements that you say price out providers? Can you get a bit into that and why that's such an obstacle in this whole thing?
1: Yeah, so that's probably the biggest obstacle right now. When I talk to home birth midwives, when I talk to, um, palliative care physicians, when I talk to hospice agencies, uh, the people who provide the highest sort of social support kind of medicine, uh, they do not get reimbursed at the same rate as the physicians who provide the really high-intensity medicine. So Medicare in the U.S., and it's uh, also called Medicare in Canada as far as I understand, um, they both operate on a fee-for-service system, um, and that's one of the primary criticisms of the healthcare system. Them broadly is that the fee-for-service model incentivizes procedures. You don't get paid for having detailed conversations with patients about their goals. You get paid for sticking a needle in them. You get paid for doing a procedure. You get paid for surgery. Uh, so one of the problems with um, that, that midwifery, for example, faces, that hospice care faces, is that they are not procedure-heavy. In fact, the whole point of their existence is that they are not procedure heavy. Uh, They are what what you might call sort of human heavy. They're called high touch, um, low tech um, uh, providers. But that means that they, they already start off at this huge imbalance when it comes to what kinds of things providers will cover. Um, so I was talking to a home birth midwife recently, and we were talking about how she gets reimbursed. And so in New York State, and this is the case for a lot of states, um, although it's shifting, I think, slightly. But to So for a home birth midwife to get reimbursed by the insurance company, first of all, she has to be legal in that state, which She won't be in a lot of states. Um, But then she has to go to the insurance company and basically say, okay, what, you know, how much are you going to reimburse me? And many insurance companies will respond, well, we don't have a code for that. (laughs) And so, well, she'll say, but but I'm providing care. And they say, well, we just don't have a code. So what most home birth midwives have done is they've accepted the code for birth which is the code that basically says you caught this baby as it came out of someone's body and they'll pay her maybe a thousand dollars for that. But she has provided nine months of prenatal care right. that there's no code for. So she doesn't get paid for that.
0: that. That's crazy.
1: It's, it's completely insane. So what she ends up doing is she ends up charging the, the family out of pocket for that prenatal care and then billing the insurance company directly for that, you know, whatever it is, one dozen or $2,000 for catching the baby. Um, but I mean, so, so one of the problems, of course, with the reimbursement system is just that it's so heavily bureaucratic that it's impossible for innovative models to break through. If you're stymied and you buy the fact that there's no code and people just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, we can't reimburse you until there's a code. And you say, well, how do I get a code? And they go, I don't know. I mean, it's like this bizarre no man's land, right? Where like nobody actually knows how you get innovative uh, care uh, reimbursed. So that's the first piece. Um, but the second piece is really the fact that there's a systematic bias within the Medicare and Medicaid system in the United States that privileges physicians over other kinds of providers. So the exact same Vaginal, unmedicated birth in um, attended by a physician gets reimbursed at a different rate than the exact same birth done by a midwife. Um, so that was the case until the Affordable Care Act, I think, tried to rectify that and, and have at least nurse midwives reimbursed at similar rates for the same kind of birth. But states have been very, very slow to put that into uh, into place, largely because state medical lobbies are heavily against midwives being reimbursed at similar rates to physicians. So there's this just there's just this huge procedural bias. Um, if you take the end of life care too, you know one of the one of the things that that really is a problem for that particular context is the fact that palliative care physicians who are the people who try to provide comfort care and symptom management for people with terminally uh, terminal illnesses or life limiting illnesses. um, They are often not reimbursed for the conversations that they have with people. And the vast majority of the type of care that you really need at the end of life is conversations about goals of care. So if you want to go home and spend your last six months with your family instead of inpatient in a hospital being pumped full of chemotherapy, you need to have a conversation in order for that to happen. But that conversation will not be reimbursed or it'll be reimbursed at a significantly lower rate than the chemo will. And every time palliative care has a conversation and somebody decides to stop uh, to stop a treatment, that's money out of someone's pocket. So the entire system is set up in such a way to, to really sort of stymie innovation, prevent people from coming into the market, but also prevent the people who are in the market already from providing high quality care. The incentives just point exactly backwards in every case that we care about.
0: Right. As you said, and I, th- I think it was it was a great way to sum up the whole thing as well as that you said the the incentive structure is such it's it's incentivizing procedures that's how people get reimbursed ultimately there it's not there's no incentive to provide consultation and well the care and healthcare right exactly so we've explored a, a lot of obstacles to the to improvements to, to the overall system uh, and that provides a great backdrop for for the rest of the discussion as well but but ultimately, I, and what I like that you did in the intro of your book is you sort of summed all of this up, and you said it can back to your uh, watershed metaphor. Th- this ultimately creates just a a cascade of interventions, as I think is the way you termed it. Like, ultimately, someone's trying to navigate this river or or in this metaphor, and and they just get swept up in the current, right? So that their informed Mm -hmm. consent and that what they really want isn't ultimately driving the bus, or should I say, navigating the boat. You say that the current becomes the decision maker in all of this, and they get swept towards more intensive and more intensive care.
1: Yeah, um, a good example of that is actually, um, I, I interviewed her for the book, but she's also a friend of mine. She had a a cesarean section for her first birth and wanted to uh, wanted to have a VBAC for her, or at least attempt a VBAC for her second birth. So uh, she had high quality insurance. She looked around. She was in a major metropolitan area, um, and it turned out that the only provider who would allow her to uh, to have to attempt a vaginal birth was not on her insurance. So she was faced with the prospect of paying ten thousand dollars out of pocket. To attempt a vaginal birth, which is the most medically appropriate option for her in her given situation. It would also save the overall healthcare system money because surgical births are more expensive overall for the system than vaginal births. But she was in this bizarre system where she couldn't, she would have to pay $10,000 out of pocket to have a VBAC, um, whereas her insurance company would pay completely for her to have have a repeat surgery. Um, in her case, it was important enough to her because she was planning on having more kids that she wanted to really push for that VBAC. So she ended up paying um, over $10,000 out of pocket to have that VBAC. But that's not a situation in which you can you can say honestly that informed consent played a role. Right. Um, if, she, if she had been low income, if she had been in a rural area, she wouldn't have had the option to have a VBAC at all. So it was just the way that she was able to pay her way out of the system to actually have her consent mean anything. That just seems to me completely broken. And there's no way that I can see of justifying that kind of system that constrains people so seriously uh, that they have to spend savings, retirement funds to get the kind of medical care that should be... That should be routine because it's low cost and high quality. We're not asking for like you know gold enamel uh, birthing suites here, right? right? This is just basic evidence-based uh, evidence-based practices that people have to pay out of pocket to get access to. Um, so yeah, I think the informed consent piece is really crucial.
0: And, and if you narrow someone's range of choices down from 10 to 2, let's say, some may say, well, you know, the regulation's important. They still have a choice between 1 and 2 at that point. Well, if their preference lies in the, the 8 you've eliminated, that's not really... You know, constraining someone's choice ultimately. That that's kind of making a choice for them in a way, which is definitely a theme of this conversation. As as you've said a few times, that, that's definitely crazy. Um, and that's terrible for people's informed consent. And really what it's terrible for respecting what people want to do uh with with their own bodies and their own choices when it comes to health care. Uh, there's a few times in this conversation where we've said, you know, we, we've used some examples and said, like, you know, some people are, are forced to pay their way out of it, or you know, someone has to pay out of pocket, and a lot of people don't even have that option at the end of the mm-hmm. day. So everything we're talking about about must disproportionately affect certain communities or people of certain income level. It's even worse when you get into those conversations, I I definitely think.
1: Yes. And the data supports that. So um, if you look at, for example, the states with the most restrictive medical lobbies, Uh, they often affect the, they often affect populations with a high proportion of low income and minority women, for example. Um, So Alabama, for example, has incredibly restrictive um, policies. And so it's almost impossible, for example, to use the VBAC example again, it's almost impossible to get a VBAC in Alabama. Um, In fact, you can't even really pay your way into it. It's just, it's very, very difficult. Um, And so women have, have been taking up, I mean, they've actually been going into the mountains in Georgia, they've been crossing state lines to give birth, uh, with midwives in RVs Wow! because their choices are so constrained in the state in which they live. Um, but again, in order to cross the border, you've got to have funds. You've got to have some limited time that you can get off of work to do that. And not everyone has access to that. So in the United States, for example, um, The evidence suggests that we are really, really failing our minority communities. Um, If you look at the African American case, we have the highest rates of maternal mortality. um, I mean, in general, we have some of the highest rates of maternal mortality in the developing, uh, in the developed world. But for African American women, it's significantly higher. So in New York, New York State uh, New York City, for example, I think it's eight times uh, black women have eight times the risk of dying during childbirth as white women do. Nationwide, it's something like four times the risk. And a lot of that has to do with a really complicated combination of factors that include poor access to prenatal care as well as this this high intensity medical system that actually creates stress in pregnant women and what we've what the current Research seems to be um, sort of centering around is the idea that increased stress in pregnancy is a major cause of uh, preeclampsia and other kinds of conditions that are life threatening for women, um, and Black women are much much more likely to have those kinds of complications at birth. And it doesn't seem to be. I mean, it, if you control for education level, if you control for a variety of basic you know income level. Uh, black women still, college educated black women still die at rates higher than um, high school educated white women. So there's still just this huge disparity, even when you control for education and income. Um, and so they think some of it has to do with stress, chronic stress. Uh, but from my research, a lot of it seems to be um, a lack of culturally competent care and a lack of care that accepts the fact that people may have Preferences that differ from the norm, and so when you're shoved into a box um, from the very beginning of your pregnancy, that can create a lot of stress, a lot of alienation from your provider, a lack of trust with your provider. That's something that comes up consistently in surveys of African American patients: is feeling as though they are not being listened to, their concerns are not being addressed. Um, And they're being dismissed. And the data seems to demonstrate that when you look at maternal mortality among the black population, because a lot of the kinds of things that black women are dying from are completely preventable. And they would have been prevented if people had listened to the women who were trying to tell them that something was wrong.
0: This is American examples you've been providing for, from the Canadian perspective. There's a few stories in the same vein as well uh, that, you know, illustrates everything we've been talking about when it comes to, um, you know, our respect for people's uh, decision-making process and, and informed consent and, and all, all the other factors we've been talking about here today. Two, the recently there, there were stories in, in Canada about... Um, specifically Aboriginal women who, at the end of the day, were effectively forced into self-sterilization self-steril- uh, at the threat of either not being able to see their children or, or in other cases, uh, being mm-hmm. c- continually uh, recommended at by doctors to say, oh, this is an option you should take. And, and ultimately, there, there's t- there are many Aboriginal women who are, are have now went through the, these procedures. And ultimately, in retrospect, and when you really dig into the story, ev- everything was off there. There was Barely even a, a sliver of informed consent in this process. They they all say that they they felt that kind of back to what we were saying before that the process itself of healthcare, at least in their situation, was driving mm-hmm. or navigating the boat, if you will, not them. And, and that is an, an extreme story and, and a terrible story as well.
1: Yeah, and the indigenous uh, case is is an interesting one too because if I if I'm remembering correctly, I believe that uh, maternal and infant mortality rate. Among the Indigenous population in Canada, I mean, there's a serious failure of Canadian healthcare to address the needs of, of that population. Yes, and one of the things that that has been happening in the U.S. as well is an attempt to to actually train midwives and doulas uh, who are themselves people of color who are themselves um, uh, Indigenous uh, or Native American, and and to get those folks into their com- back into their community so that they can provide this kind of care because for whatever reason there's a dramatic and, and actually I think that I think the reason is pretty clear when you prioritize high procedure medicine you are cutting out that communication and that communication is what creates trust between patients and providers so when you don't have that trust a lot of really important information that physicians need to practice medicine well is not available to them because the patients either don't don't Either there's not time to to actually transfer that information, uh, or because the patient doesn't trust the physician enough to know what that physician's going to do with that information. Um, and there's been really good, there's good reasons not to trust what your physician does with that information, right? There have been some really, really horrific cases of women in the United States going to their doctor and being honest about the fact that they're struggling with postpartum depression, mm-hmm. and their doctor called Child Protective Services and they lost custody of their children. So right. why would you tell the doctor the truth, right? There's no reason to. So the failure of communication, I think, stems from the overall incentive structure that we have in place, which is that when you're incentivizing doing things to people, um, it, it creates this gulf between the provider and the patient. and the, And that's a gulf that's going to be much, much harder to walk across if you are a, a member of a traditionally marginalized community. Um, in my case, when my OB was clearly not going to respect my preferences, I just walked away and found a different doctor. That's just not possible if you are on a reservation, for example, as, exactly. uh, in the United States, or if you're in the inner city and there's one clinic available. Um, so I have I had an enormous amount of freedom to flex my informed consent that many, 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 any women, but particularly women in marginalized populations simply do not have.
0: And I really did enjoy when you touched on multiple times in your writing on this topic, communication, because it became clear to me as I was reading everything you wrote about this stuff that, you know, once that breaks down, then everything breaks down after that, right? Informed consents mm-hmm. out the window. Maybe people consent to something, but it's certainly not informed. I think at least in my experience, probably maybe a small sample size, but like when I talk to people about how they're being treated in the healthcare system in Canada, at least, um, maybe they don't have anything negative to say about certain procedures, but ultimately I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, I had my appointment, I feel like I got all my concerns on the table, time was taken to make sure that I was taken care of and I left feeling really informed and good about the decisions I've made. Like that's never been someone's report in my <laughs> right. opinion. So that, like yeah. I said, like from the communication part, I mean, it is about ultimately your care. So you need to know what the heck's going on.
1: Yeah. And there's another important piece that I want to mention because it comes up consistently in the narrative surrounding why we have this high intensity medical uh, system. And, And it comes back to liability. So a lot of doctors, and I see this over and over again in the literature, well, if patients didn't sue doctors so much, well, then we could practice higher quality medicine, right? We could have this lower intensity approach, but because doctors typically don't get sued for providing too much medicine, but they do get sued for providing not enough medicine, um, all the incentives sort of point in the direction of what people call defensive medicine, right? Um, I'm just doing a C-section so that you don't sue me later, right? Hmm. And the irony of that is that if you look at the research on why physicians get sued, it's because they don't communicate with their patients. So the physicians who are more likely to get sued and the hospitals that are more likely to get sued are the ones who circle the wagons, prevent the patients from finding out what happened. Um, In one of the biggest cases in U.S. history, Caroline Malatin, Testa, she she just won, I think it was a $16 million lawsuit against a hospital in Alabama um, for a civil suit for harm um, that was done to her during her childbirth. Um, the reason that she sued was that the hospital refused to provide her records about what happened during her care. Mm. So she was left with permanent nerve damage, and the hospital basically circled the wagons and said, you know, we're not going to talk to you. So at that point, you have no choice but to sue. And it turned out that that was a great decision on her part because there was an enormous, um, enormous, um, it it was absolutely the hospital's fault. But there's been research on um, communication um, and reconciliation as methods to reduce doctors' liability risk, and they find that those are effective. If you tell a patient, hey, something went wrong in the surgery, uh, we're going to do an investigation and we're going to re- release that report to you and talk to you about it. Patients, by and large, are much less likely to sue. Right. But if you wait for patients to find out that they were hurt later or you they know that they were hurt but they can't figure out why, uh, suing is the only option that they have. So communication is not just sort of this touchy feel thing that like makes people feel better. Um, it actually has really, really crucial health outcomes, but also attacks some of the the major concerns that physicians have about practicing medicine in the current environment, which is they feel like they're at odds with their patients because their patients are going to sue them. Well, if that's the case, then we need a higher quality communication. We need longer appointments. But, but in order to do that, you have to change the overall structure of healthcare, starting with the reimbursement policies and allowing for more competition from providers like midwives who provide a completely different standard of care. Midwifery appointments are 45 minutes long as opposed to three to five minutes with OBEs. That's a big difference. Right. Right. So we're just the, the entire system prevents that communication from happening.
0: And and I was actually and I'm glad you touched on it, because I was going to say as our time winds down here, that that's how I sort of wanted to uh, f- finish off our, our chat here today. Let, let's talk about, you know, and I know you can't do it justice in, in a small amount of time, but at a high level, at least, let's talk about, you know, let's focus a bit on solutions, right? Like, it, ultimately... You said in, in your in your book, uh, and there's some big claims here, but but some very positive claims. You said like you know the results of new structures and a new arrangement of all of this is going to be things like lowered co- lower costs, more equal access to the system, uh, overall improved health outcomes. How do we at least steer things toward? that improvement? Well, what do some solutions look like to everything we've been talking about today?
1: I mean, there's the sort of big picture, very idealistic pie in the sky solutions, which is to just sort of burn down um, Medicare and Medicaid and start over again. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing in the context of the 2020 election, where one of the things that we're talking about is Medicare for all in the United States context. And uh, I mean, that seems to me, the worst possible system because Medicare is so fundamentally broken. So, we're talking about expanding it, making it bigger. Like, what a terrible idea. <laughs> um, but I think one of the really important things is to give people more control over their healthcare dollars. So, a really basic um, reform that, again, I think is more idealistic because just for political reasons. Uh, would be to give people more, or to emphasize more health savings accounts. Create incentives for people to put money into those health savings accounts, and give people more control over where their healthcare dollars go. And I know that in your previous episode with Jessica Flanagan, you know she she mentioned that when you actually give people more control over their healthcare dollars. Um, Um, well, she was talking about the pharmaceutical context. People actually do behave in pretty responsible ways. So this is not an insane kind of argument. Um, And people actually have HSAs and do uh, health savings accounts and do really good stuff with them. Um, I think, generally speaking, trying to limit the power of third-party payers, unfortunately, we're moving in the other direction. So we're moving toward more and more insurance company involvement, whether you're talking about Medicare Medicaid or private insurance. But we really need to get those guys out of the system altogether, because if people don't have a direct connection with what they're, they're not paying for the care that they get, at least not directly, uh, it means that they're much less sensitive to questions of quality. And they also have much, much less freedom to shop with their medical dollars, and I think that's a really serious problem. Um, in my case, I didn't have an option; I I was stuck with the two hospitals nearby, and there was just no real alternative in terms of birth centers or other um, other kinds of uh, area, um, other kinds of locations. Um, there are, though, some more hopeful. I mean, I think a lot of the r- real reform is going to happen from the bottom up, and so what's happening in some areas is that there are a lot of people. Um, Physicians, midwives, people experimenting with integrated care. And I think that a lot of those experiments, insofar as they are successful, are going to give us some data that we can actually use to put pressure on state regulators at the very least. Um, So there's in Minnesota, for example, there's something called the birth bundle, which is um, a group of there's a high risk um, paternal maternal fetal specialist who's a high-risk OB, um, and he works with a group of midwives and other OBs, and they basically create a kind of triage system. But the beauty of that system is that they're not competing directly against each other because they pool the patient dollars that come in together. And so that kind of integrated care system can be really powerful because it can provide people with the care that they need when they're high risk, but it can also keep, there's an incentive to keep them low risk, which we don't have if physicians and midwives are just competing directly against each other all the time. Um, at the same time, the people who run that have indicated that current Medicare and Medicaid policies make it very, very difficult for them to, it's 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 very difficult to bill under that kind of system. So there, there. We just we have to have some federal reforms, or the whole thing is going to go nowhere. But I do think that there are these little experiments happening at the state level um, of different healthcare systems trying out new kinds of things, uh, like bundled payments, like integrated care units. Um, uh, Medicare itself is is experimenting with value based care which again, I think is going to be really problematic in a bunch of ways because it's so heavily bureaucratic, but at least there's maybe an attempt to deal with some of these issues. But so (laughs) I try not to end on a super depressing note, but the bureaucracy has grown so large and the US and Canada pour so much money into the bureaucracy of medicine. Right. That there are now so many interested stakeholders in keeping that system in place, that I'm I'm not optimistic about the potential for serious reform.
0: It, cer- it certainly is not going to happen overnight at, in any event, right? Definitely long term yes. battles and must be must be fought in one.
1: Yeah, and I think it'll happen on the state level and the province level. It, it'll happen with these smaller, but but that requires that the federal government's loosen their or loosen their reins a little bit. You've got to let the the states and provinces experiment a little bit. Um, And, and I think we're starting to see some of that, but definitely not enough.
0: So, I mean, our time is basically up here and I want to make sure that we end the episode the way, the way we always do, which is we're we're going to give you the the final thoughts and final words on our our discussion here today. So, you know, we've talked about a lot. I know it's hard to to summarize it all and put a finer point on everything, but, but if we can just try to Lauren, what, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here today? as you discuss what's wrong with modern healthcare.
1: Yeah, so the, the major lesson that I, that I want people to realize is that this is not the fault of individual physicians, it's not the fault of nurses, it's not the fault of midwives. We have created a system that makes it essentially impossible to practice medical care in an ethical manner. Uh, we've created a system that prioritizes over treatment, that makes physical and mental harm almost impossible to avoid, uh, that breeds rights violations, it creates enormously high economic costs across the board, and it creates very real harm for the most vulnerable populations among us. And so it's not just, I think a lot of the, the, the systematic conversations that people have about healthcare focus on cost. But to me, that's actually the least concerning piece of the puzzle. And so what I would love for people to do is simply take a look at their, their state regulations on healthcare care and, and take a look at some of the ways in which their choices are artificially limited by various kinds of lobbying groups. And then start thinking about ways to fight back against that. But until patients realize the ways in which their choices are constrained, people won't question the fact that they have one choice instead of 10 or two choices instead of 20. And I think we really need to open people's eyes up to the way in which the system itself constrains people in completely artificial ways.
0: Lauren Hall, thank you so much for chatting with me here today on The Curious Task.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Vappenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.